Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I'm a right-handed Sagittarius. I love Chinese food. I've never seen the Pacific Caution, and I think that the Big Lebowski's overrated. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today in the second segment, the great Peter Singer is going to finally be on the podcast. Who should our next bucket list guest be after this one? I mean, who should it be or who do we have a shot at getting? <laughs> Those two very well, different questions. both, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I'm Dave Pizar from Cornell University. So I remember this. Uh, Sam Esmail. So we're just going to bitch about, like, seasons two through four of Mr. Robot? Well, you have that other show that you swear you're on his nuts about, so I figure we could... Oh, Homecoming, yeah. So we could watch Homecoming, and he seems like, uh, you know, like... I, I can't remember anybody else we've talked about more than, than having on. I mean, I, I, I like... I think anybody who is involved in some of the entertainment that we've consumed would be super fun. Like, we've never had... Like Charlie a, Booker, a, you know, Ted, exactly. Ted, yeah. Ted Chang, Damon Lindelof, yeah. Ted Chang. Well, Damon Lindelof yeah. will be after we do our leftovers bonus episode. Yeah. Um, what about David Lynch? I think we've got a shot. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have a shot. He he goes on a lot of podcasts. I think I've I've I've, I've, I've heard him once on Russell Brand's podcast. They have a transcendental meditation connection. He's great. He's hilarious, but he he pretty much doesn't leave his art studio. Um, it would be funny if he just spoke gibberish for about an hour with us, and then we could just interpret it. I would find it brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a random word generator. <laughs> uh, we just watched... Oh, oh speaking of bo- uh, Patreon bonus episodes, it's not promo time yet, but I'm going to record tomorrow a bonus episode with Jesse Graham and Natalia Washington on Blue Velvet. Nice. And I actually... I haven't even told you this, but uh, uh, Barry Lamb and I are going to record again this time on the new Picard Star Trek series uh, that we both watched the first season of. Is this a polyamorous relationship right now? Uh, I well, I was feeling compersion. I think I felt something. I felt something in the pit of my stomach. I felt something <laughs> kind of growing, but <laughs> uh, I mean, at least I'm not having threesomes. That's all I'm saying. That's true. So, but before we get to uh, Peter Singer, we I think we needed something very lighthearted. How dare you, lighthearted? <laughs> I actually don't know what, well, 
we'll get to it. So, so uh, for whatever reason, I saw this on Twitter, and even though I think that it's a discussion that's, that's been going on for quite some time, and the paper that it's referring to came out in 2018, people were talking about it now. And the, the topic is, and so this is a blog post at a, at a blog called practicaltypography.com, which I assume, Tamler, you're an avid reader of. Yes. Uh, called, <laughs> Are Two Spaces Better Than One? A Response to New Research. And so this this uh, blog post is about a journal article called Are Two Spaces, Two Spaces Better Than One? The Effect of Spacing Following Periods and Commas During Reading. I sent this to you hoping for some reason that you might actually uh, think that it might be fun to talk about it, and, and you actually did. Um, and so I was very happy. I do look at things through a lens of <laughs> That's what does this bash... <laughs> You know, like <laughs> empirical research where it doesn't belong. And it seemed like this did. So I said yes. But to be clear, like there's nothing I care less about than the two spaces versus one space debate after a period. I do two spaces after a period because that's how I learned it, you know, in typing class when I took my secretary class in high school. <laughs> and... Uh, and so I do it. I'm happy if, you know, people change it or if uh, people do one space. I don't, I can't even pretend to care. I can't even play the game of caring about it. Um, yeah. I actually re- very much enjoy typography and discussions about fonts. I can't, I can't really care that much about this either. Like you, I learned to type with two spaces on typewriters in my uh, administrative assistant class, as we say nowadays. And uh, <laughs> and um, I think I automatically put two spaces in. Sometimes I have to go and take it out. And in fact, you. so the way that we do it is you write the show notes and I post them. And because two spaces looks weird on the particular display um, that, that is used by Fireside, I always take out the, sec- the two spaces. I'm glad to know that you're not secretly offended uh, by that. But nonetheless, <laughs> this is a this, this is, is news <laughs> to me. Uh, <laughs> this is a huge debate amongst nerds. Uh, but that's not why we probably found it interesting. Uh, we found it interesting because it's a nice sort of takedown of what the, the at least the way that some of the press concluded, um, or at least what they said should be concluded following this uh, the publication of this journal article. So that what the journal article on the face of it seems to be claiming and the way that it was talked about was that this was empirical evidence that two spaces after a sentence is actually better. And um, as he is the author, I don't know if it's he or she, uh, mentions in, in their blog post, so APA... American Psychological Association, their style guide says to use two spaces. And, you know, there's apparently been no no kind of empirical research on whether that's a good thing or not. And so the, the author is, until now, apparently the author has just very clearly said, yeah, that was their motivation to, like, see if they could provide evidence for, for the APA. It's very <laughs> motivated. <laughs> right. It's like the John Haidt thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Social intuitionist model. I'm actually dumbfounded. I just think two spaces is better. I don't know why. I, don't, I can't tell you why. Maybe because God said so. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, the it, it appears as if that was uh, what, what they found. But if you dig deeper, which this blog uh, does, 
they found what? Like that it uh, was better? That it was. They did a test for better fonts? Yeah, that they said that putting two spaces after a period delivered a small but statistically detectable improvement in reading speed. And so it's not even about uh, comprehension. Um, it's it's just about reading speed. And so it turns out that um, – and what I like – one of the things I like about this blog post is that that he he's not questioning what they found. Like, it's like I grant that they found what they found. But all he did was dig a little bit more <laughs> into what they found. And then, yes, we, without being heavy-handed about whether or not this applies to more general <laughs> more general trends in our field, let's just stick to talking about this study. So, so this was the small but statistically detectable improvement in reading speed was about 3% improvement in reading speed, but only for people who already type with two spaces. So they part of this study measured whether or not they had people type and they just categorized people like into one spacers or two spacers. And so when they spliced the data up, they found this effect um, in reading speed, 3% for people who already typed with, with uh, uh, two spaces. So a very small difference that is uh, entirely limited to who already do it. Let me note as the very bad wizards, official Marxist, that again, once you find this transcendental sanction for the status quo, you find that people who use two spaces are now leading the charge to keep themselves in power by reading faster with two spaces. This might be not uh, at the level of conscious awareness. A lot of these things aren't, but this is... Uh, exactly what a Marxist would expect. Systems justifying. Yeah, um, exactly. And, <laughs> even, <laughs> and they're just trying to make one spacers feel bad about it. So, uh, so oppress them, exploit them. That's right. It's, t- it's time for for them to rise up. So, so okay. I guess there there's more nuance even to this finding, and it's there are more caveats in this finding than than. Uh, than one would expect. It's like reading this blog post is like reading uh, twists and turns of a plot because you think that that might be the end of the story. Well, okay, they found this this three percent, but when you actually look at what uh, how they how they did the study, it starts to shed some light on on uh, whether or not this finding is even interesting. Um, if you take it at face value. Part of the problem is that when they created their experimental stimuli, they used what's called a monospace font, Courier New, which... Um, From like 20 years ago? Yeah, programmers tend to use it. It's not... It's Basically, there is the same amount of space between letters, no matter what the letters are. And most people don't use fonts like this anymore because it just turns out to be better and easier to read when you vary how much space is after a letter depending on how busy that letter is. So so this blog post tried to uh, recreate what the font, what the display would have looked like. Um, By the way, on a CRT display, like an old style tube uh, display 
from 2002. Because the experiment was in like a liberal arts college psychology <laughs> department, right? That's that's sad, but it's true. It's six. It's sixty Skidmore college students who are native speakers. Of oh American my English. god! How are you not just embarrassed? <laughs> These are not my How people. Read this without <laughs> blushing. No, but it's your field. Uh, you know, no. Sometimes you. Whatever, whatever. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, by the way, this guy pointed out something that I, I didn't know was true, but apparently typographers just always recommend only one space after a sentence. I did not know that. It's good to know. But they don't claim to have any empirical, right? Un- unlike the uh, APA, they don't claim to have empirical support for this uh, recommendation. So I encourage people. We'll put a link to actually look at the at the font. They have a weird amount of space in between the lines. Um, it's just like a weird looking. It's very weird. The whole thing is very weird. Yeah, looking. yeah. Um, using a, a shitty CRT display from two thousand two that you know everybody's phones has better resolution than that now, and. And the findings were weren't at all. They didn't get any differences among about reading comprehension. Comprehension accuracy was high across all the conditions. Uh, the authors acknowledge all these limitations uh, that the paragraphs were presented in monospa- monospace fonts, and that's not how how they're presented nowadays. And that they only found it in in one of these conditions, which is very sort of p hacky to split up your sample to s- try to search for something. And even then, they only found it in three. So I think the the big take home from this guy, oh Matthew Butterick is the name of the the uh, author of the blog post, is he points out very nicely all of the different conditions under which we read things whether it's display size, fonts, the conditions of which we're reading, and how all of that's going to matter. And so he's not surprised at all that they're not going to find any sort of universal uh, finding, and he thinks that it's misguided to think that you could design an empirical test of whether or not two spaces is leads to better comprehension than one space. Because the question is, very poorly specified. It's underspecified, and the complexity of the environments and under which people read, you know, you would have to study every single environment, uh, every kind of font, every kind of display, if you were to be able to make a, a, a prediction about how this will work in real life. So, I mean, so I would expect you when these confounding factors are pointed out. They, for you to defend the authors of the study by saying, well, this is just how science works. It's just slow and steady, one step at a time. Just, you know, like people will build on this research and, you know, maybe after like, you know, 10 people devote their careers to this question, we will have, a, we will have made a little progress. Well, let's pretend that this is an interesting question. <laughs> well, um, I actually want so- to talk about that because... So all right, but let me defend myself from what you just okay. said first, yeah. um, which is yeah, of course I would say that because that is true. I mean, but but you, you I don't want to confuse that with the possibility that some studies actually don't find anything. So so assuming that a study finds something that you have enough power, uh, right, good sample size, and you don't have compounds, it's assuming all that stuff that I would say then science is incremental. Here it's unclear whether they actually found anything. I want to just talk about the question here, and there's a great line 
in the blog post. So he, he tells this story. He says, I once gave a talk about typography to a group of UCLA law professors. Towards the end, one of them, known as the quote-unquote empirical guy on the faculty, said, that's all very interesting, Matthew, but why don't typographers resolve these matters with empirical research? Surely it can't be subjective which font is best. And then the, uh, and then the author responds, typography, like language and every other form of human expression, doesn't occupy a realm of strict objective truth. But I think that if I had to pick a target, like an enemy of my, you know, these last couple of years of me being on my hobby horse on the podcast, it is that rhetorical question, surely it can't be subjective, which font is best? I, I, it, it absolutely <laughs> could be subjective. In fact, it just is subjective and just... The, the mindset that would m- make that kind of statement or question or whatever it is okay, I think, is a real problem. It is what leads to a lot of these studies trying to make headway into a question that ultimately is something that is not amenable to empirical research. Now, yes, you can say that it is not subjective which which style or which font will make people read faster or make people uh read with more comprehension maybe but that's 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 what they're trying to find out that's exactly what they're asking but that 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 doesn't make it best right like no 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 but it's not but it's not as if they're saying like which font is the prettiest where it's like so obvious that it's subjective cuz i you know it, it could be that no font is objectively the best um, or that there there are fonts that are objectively superior for certain kinds of people, but but it's not. I don't know how it would be subjective, right? There's an answer to whether or not there's a best font. That's what I don't get what you're saying. I See, I don't, I disagree. Like why, what, 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 what are the criteria for best font? That's not an objective question. So, so for speed or comprehension. That is, but that doesn't make it a be- the best font. No, no, no. That, but he's talking specifically about speed and like he was giving a talk about typography and from the context, it seems what he was giving was a, a, a talk about whether or not some of these are more legible, right? Or... Right, so he goes on to say, by the way, have you researched what kind of law review in his in his uh, hypothetical retort to the professor? By the way, have you researched what kind of law review article is most likely to get you tenure? How many words in the first sentence? Average number of vowels per paragraph? But that's a reductio of his question. Yeah, but what he's it's not that he's saying that, uh, well, this is just, it can never be studied. It's a great mystery. I think there's an answer. Like it could very well be that there is, no font that improves legibility across the board. But that doesn't make it subjective. That just means objectively there's no difference. Well, legibility is a diff- like again, how you decide what the best font is and what the criteria for that is is just not an empirical question. Like I, I don't necessarily want a font where I, that I can read the fastest in. Sure. This whole post is about the speed and legibility of, of and comprehension of reading. So if what you're saying is that what you define as best is subjective, then sure, absolutely. 
But but I take it that what he was saying was that that there's no clear answer to which one would improve whatever goal it is you have, whether it's legibility. And I think that's right, but not because it's subjective, but rather because it's really complicated. And I think this is the... But I, I don't think that's what the author is saying. I think that he is saying two things and he's not quite sure. So he's saying that when he when the professor asks, surely it can't be subjective which font is best, he doesn't say, no, yes, it can be subjective. He points to the complexity of the problem. No, he says it doesn't occupy, he says very explicitly, it doesn't occupy the realm of objective truth. You're right. Typography, like language in every other form, doesn't occupy a realm of strict, strict objective truth. Um, that doesn't mean typographers are hostile to the idea of research or that legibility can't be tested. On the contrary, many typefaces have emerged from forms of empirical research. So he goes on to describe how uh, ink spreads on newsprint and how fonts were developed, right? So, so long as, as you have a clearly defined uh, metric, then there is an empirical answer. That empirical answer might be, it is completely dependent on the individual that's reading it. It could be that, but that doesn't make it subjective. No, but what makes it subjective is that there are all sorts of different kinds of considerations to take into account uh, to weigh when you're trying to, say, choose a typography and how you weigh each of those considerations is not something that you can test for. I agree. I totally, yeah, I totally agree. So suppose that you had like, okay, there's legibility, there's aesthetics, there's uh, um, comprehension rates, there's whatever. You could could make a list of these and you could run a bunch of empirical tests on all of them and you still wouldn't know which one is the best. All you would know is which ones do which things under what conditions. So what he says later is... Could we discover the best font for everything? He says it looks hopeless. Research by its nature tests narrow questions, as you just said. As I said in What is Good Typography, typography can't be reduced to a math problem with one right answer. I think that's, that. I mean, I think that's kind of obviously true, but then I also think this is, it, it's the mindset that makes someone have to express that obvious point that I find to be a problem, that everything, that we're not even comfortable admitting a level of subjectivity to something like typography, that we still just want some sort of study to, to make the decision for us, to just tell us which, which one to do, because we can't just accept that ultimately this is going to come down to things that can't be tested. But I I think that there is some confusion here about what is being questioned. When he says typography can't be reduced to a math problem with one right answer, I think what he's pointing to is just that there are all these considerations that you would take into account when deciding which which typeset to use. That's very different than saying you might as well not get started because there's a mindset that there's an answer to these. I think what he's saying is there is not one right answer. There's many answers depending on the question that you ask. And there, I don't see why you would not start doing the research. Where I agree with you is that that mindset seems to guide the way that we ask our empirical questions and the conclusions that we draw from them. 
I think we're, we're in agreement there. Like nobody, it seems as if we're afraid to say what we tested was the comprehension rates of, of uh, this kind of font on this kind of computer screen on this kind of person because, we're, because that's not interesting to anybody. So let me ask you this then. And and I and I bet there's a good answer to this question because I I, uh, I haven't I don't mean this as like a gotcha question. This isn't gotcha journalism. Mostly because we're not journalists. What if the law <laughs> the law professor you're giving a talk on Borges and then the law professor says, surely there's an it's an empirical question which Borges story is best and you know like then you know set aside that it's silly to think that you can run a simple test that will tell us which is the best Borges stories. But also you could, you could make an, you could make a somewhat analogous counter, which is, well, we can test which is the one people rate the highest, which is the one people are most likely to remember a year after they've read it, which are the ones that, and all of that. And, I still maintain that that wouldn't tell you which Borges story is the best one. I don't think I disagree with anything that you just said. I think what we're we're assuming that the law professor who asked surely one of these fonts is the best was specifically making a claim about the best in terms of the legibility or or the comprehension. If if he was asking the question that's akin to which Borges story is the best, then then that's silly. Like you could test what what font people like the best by asking exactly what you said. But there's a lot of interesting things that could be found. Like, um, you know, some of my, I don't know why I enjoy this so much, but you've, uh, have you seen people who analyze rap lyrics for uh, the, the size, the amount of words that they use across their corpus? So like there's a, a metric of uh, like who uses the most words across all their songs. Like the most words per song or? No, the, in their whole corpus, like who has the widest vocabulary. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I remember, I think it's something like Wu-Tang is up there, the Wu-Tang Clan, which could be because there's nine different guys. But um, uh, that's a kind of an interesting question. And you can, you know, people also ask the question, like how many, um, what is the rhyme scheme? Like the, how, how many rhymes within a verse? So like somebody like Eminem is off the charts. I think that captures something that's interesting when we're making our subjective evaluations. We might say, I like Eminem, but I'm not sure why. And the answer might be, well, part of the reason why might be because of these complex rhyme schemes or whatever. And in fact, if you look at his, he has, you know, 22% higher complexity than, than Jay-Z or something like that. Right. And he's white, right. so... Uh, i think we agree uh more than we disagree on this it's just less fun when we agree like i said i read this with a a lens well that's why i sent it to you because this the lens was hard to ignore (laughs) um like i do maintain that um if you think, say, that Comic Sans is like an appropriate font to use for your PowerPoint, <laughs> you're objectively wrong. I'm objectively wrong, yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that things like Comic Sans are uh, easier to read. Fonts like Comic Sans are easier to read, at least this is my understanding of the research, for people who have dis- certain forms of dyslexia. 
there's something about Comic Sans that makes them easier to read. And there's an interesting finding, right? Coming up next, uh, we're going to preempt our Peter Singer segment and just do a deep dive on the documentary Helvetica. <laughs> oh, I love that documentary. So- <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a good documentary. It is really good. <laughs> <laughs> but we're actually not going to do that. No, right? no, no. I, that'll be a Patreon bonus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be what right back. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by our very longtime and favorite sponsor, GiveWell. I think there's no better episode, Tamler, to have GiveWell on uh, than this Peter Singer episode. Wouldn't Definitely, yeah. Um, Coronavirus has gripped the world and is changing our lives in ways few of us anticipated. But with time, intelligence, and cooperation, we'll overcome it together and emerge with a greater sense of shared purpose. But we also know a harsh reality. Coronavirus will leave a world with more people in need and fewer people in the position to give. This will make supporting effective charities more important than ever. When you're in a position to give and want to have maximum impact, visit GiveWell. GiveWell conducts in-depth investigations to find charities that, dollar per dollar, are saving or improving lives the most. Those donations will be used to distribute things like malaria treatments, insecticide-treated bed nets, or vitamin A supplements, programs that can save a life for every few thousand dollars donated. GiveWell uses academic research. As I've said before, they're, they're our favorite spreadsheet nerds. They also use interviews with charity representatives and site visits to estimate which charities can give donors the biggest bang for their buck. They keep their recommendations up to date to make sure that their recommended charities can still use additional funds effectively. This means that donations at any point in the year, including now, will be put to good use. Last holiday season alone, podcast listeners like you donated over $700,000, saving hundreds of lives and treating thousands of children for intestinal parasites. Yeah, it's a really great point, too, that as fewer people are in a position to give, it is that much more important to make money that you can give will effectively support people in need. Absolutely agree. When you're ready to find out what your donation can do, go to givewell.org. There you'll find all of GiveWell's research for free, as well as a short list of the most effective charities they've found. You can donate directly through their website, and they charge no fees and take no cut. So visit givewell.org. And thank you for supporting them, and thanks to GiveWell for supporting us.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time in the episode where we love to thank all of our listeners for getting in touch with us, for um, contacting us, commenting on our episodes, asking questions, raising objections. We actually just did, for the first time ever, a live AMA. Um, Yeah, we live streamed. We're, We're like millennials. We, we are, yeah. Uh, next time we'll go on, like, what is it, Twitch or something? Not Twitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is Twitch. <laughs> it Very is good. Twitch, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, maybe we can make, like, a HelloFresh or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, if you want to email us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet uh, tweet to us at Tamler or at Pease or the account at Very Bad Wizards. You can like us on Facebook. That is back up and running again, thanks to David Lara. You can follow us on Instagram. You can join the discussion on Reddit, the our subreddit, um, Very Bad Wizards. Sorry, reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards. There's a big community of people there and some good discussions as well as some bad pictures of (laughs) often me and my haircut. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so thanks to everybody for getting in touch with us. We really appreciate it and we really enjoy all that you have to say. Yeah, and if you if you like that live stream, I'm super up for doing another one. I, I think it was fun. I don't know if Tamler is, but but let us know. Yeah, no, I liked it. I need to get the hang of figuring out how to like look at the questions while at the same time paying attention to like what you're saying I, and stuff. I think you did better than me, actually. I was just <laughs> staring at my screen. Um, so yeah, but if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, which we always appreciate. Um, very, very much. You can go to verybadwizards.com and there just click on our support support page and you'll find the various ways to support us. Uh, one way to do, which we love, is if you go to our Patreon page. We very much appreciate our Patreon supporters. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards directly. And if you support us uh, for any amount, you'll get uh, beats from me. And uh, if you support us at higher levels, you'll get extra bonus content, right? Uh, what are, what's coming up for bonus content now? Yeah, we have a bunch of stuff, right? So we're yeah. going to do a leftovers one. We're going to record that very soon. I just recorded with Natalia Washington and Jesse Graham a long deep dive on Blue Velvet. Awesome. Um, oh, that'll be up soon after this episode is up. And Great. and you yeah. have some nerd thing coming. Yeah, too, right? I'm. Uh, I'm uh, along with Barry Lamb of Hi Fi Nation. We're planning to record an episode, a uh, bonus episode on uh, Picard, this, the new Star Trek series with yeah. Patrick Stewart, who, who kicks and, ass. And as soon as Dark comes out, oh man, oh, we're gonna be all over that. We're gonna be. I hope it that. doesn't jump the shark, man. But no. I'll still do it. I trust um, him. Uh, you can also support us at uh, PayPal for one-time or recurring donation. That's especially helpful if you guys want to support us, but you're not in one of those countries where Patreon works. But any way that you support us, we very much appreciate it. Um, thank, thank you very much from the bottom of our hearts. Yes, thank you. Um, so we're going to have Peter Singer on in a second just to give a brief introduction. I was actually looking at the introduction to my interview with Peter Singer in A Very Bad Wizard, the book. 
Um, and I'll put a link to like a free link to just this interview in the show notes and the links for this episode. The title for the chapter for that interview was a gadfly for the greater good. And I started it by defining gadfly, uh, a fly that bites livestock, especially a horse fly, warble fly, or bot fly. What's a bot fly? Is that like... Oh, a, man, bot flies are those ones that lay eggs under your skin. Uh, They're terrible. I, I thought it was like some sort of robot, like black mirror <laughs> I thing am fly. Or <laughs> uh, but the second one, a person who persistently annoys or provokes into action by criticism... And I think Singer is that second one. Um, like Socrates, uh, he is a true philosophical gadfly. He gets under our skin. He makes us question how we're living and whether it's justified. Um, and maybe that we're not living as we ought to be living. Um, this started with his very famous 1971 article, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, which is in almost every intro to ethics anthology and course. And that was one of the first times, prominent times, where he just offers simple, easy-to-understand arguments that have conclusions which, if true, would radically change our understanding of what it means to live a moral life. And I am just about, uh, not this week, but next week, I'm just about to do this article in my intro class, which is obviously online now. And that sucks because it is a really fun and interesting article to teach. Uh, Dave, you and I talked about the stages of Singer way back yeah. in episode 28. Do you remember Shit, that? That was episode 28. Yeah. Damn. I know, you know, and we, 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 we were a little time crunched with Peter Singer. We really wanted to bring this up, but we didn't have time. Um, but I, I wish that we had been able to tell him about the stages of Singer because, as Tamler and I spoke about back then, anytime you try to teach that, that article from Singer, you get such resistance um, yes. from, from students in, they, in a super predictable way. Yes, they are provoked in predictable ways that uh, they like they'll start offering objections that like about the charities that they're corrupt um, yeah. and you know they need to go to GiveWell. They, they, they exactly, they just go to GiveWell.org. That that'll take care of that. Uh, and then there's kind of a righteous indignation, like they earned their money; it doesn't it belongs to them. And <laughs> teach a man to fish. Uh, <laughs> right, teach a man to fish. That's a big one. The ad hominem attacks on singers' other yeah, views besides doing? the one that we're talking about, you know, um, and 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 sometimes after these stages comes a real change. I mean, this is the amazing thing about Peter Singer as a philosopher is that he has made a big practical impact on the world. Um, animal liberation, he almost single-handedly created the modern animal welfare movement. And for over 40 years, he's inspired people to increase their charitable giving, often significantly. And he's inspired, among other things, the effective altruism movement. So let's get right to the interview. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be speaking to you and even more happy to be speaking to all of your listeners. Um, you've been 
I think probably the most requested guest. So we're, we're very excited to have you. So we do have a list of questions that I'm going to get through. Them, but the first thing I, I really wanted to ask you out of curiosity is, what first attracted you to be to, to utilitarian philosophy? Was, was it something that always resonated with you? Were you? Was there a particular work that convinced you? Perhaps it always resonated with me, but I only found that out when I was an undergraduate at the University of Melbourne, and uh, I took an ethics course with H.J. Uh, McCloskey, uh, who, you, you know, you can find his work. He, he wrote a book on called Metaethics and Normative Ethics. Uh, he was very much in the mold of W.D. Ross. So he was uh, a, an intuitionist um, opposed to utilitarianism. Um, I think one of the famous uh, objections might have come from him or certainly he used it, uh, the one about the sheriff in the southern city who is uh, faced with a lynch mob that uh, uh, a white woman has been raped. Uh, she says it was an African-American. So the, crowd, the lynch mob gets half a dozen African-Americans and says, we're going to lynch you all. Um, and the only thing the sheriff can do to stop this is to say, no, wait, I've got evidence that that's the one who did it and just point to one of them um, and then hopefully they'll let the other go. Uh, so um, McCloskey thought that this was clearly wrong, although a utilitarian would do it um, because it's it's an injustice um, and uh, in particular somebody who is in the role of a law officer should not commit an injustice. Uh, and that just struck me as wrong. So you could say the fact that that struck me as wrong showed that I was already some sort of utilitarian at least. Uh, and I remember writing a paper uh, in his course in which I argued against some of his objections to utilitarianism and he was fair-minded fair enough to like the paper and to encourage me to continue to work in philosophy and so on. So uh, so that's how it got going, I guess, knocking, knocking down what was supposed to be uh, solid objections to utilitarianism eventually convinced me that there weren't really any knockdown objections to utilitarianism. Is there one that troubled you early on in your philosophical career? Is there an objection that troubled you more than any other? Mm. So early on, I'm not sure, I guess, you know, the sort of Dostoevsky stuff about you have to torture this little child in front of you in order to um, produce heaven on earth, basically, um, you know, utopia forever after, no more wars, no more violence and so on. Uh, of course, it's troubling to think about, you know, could you really torture a sh small child? And but I guess at some point I realized the question isn't, could I really torture a small child? That's just a question about my psychology and my abilities. But would it be right to torture the small child? Given that if you don't torture this small child, lots of other small children will get tortured over the years and centuries to come. Um, and you can prevent it just by torturing this one. Um, I think it would be right to torture this one. But uh, yeah, so so in a way, yes, that example emotionally troubled you and ought to trouble anybody, right, to think about that because it's a completely fantastic example. And Dostoevsky doesn't bother explaining how torturing this small child will produce uh, utopia forever afterwards. So um, it's it's not that relevant that we can't do it, you know. 
Right. The example became so common that I almost think there is a clear, there must be a clear causal connection between torturing an infant and having utopia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think David goes around, we have to keep all the infants away from him right now. Right. Okay. Watch out. Which is the one that has to be tortured? That's the problem to know which is the one, right? (laughs) It's not any of the 10 that he tried to do it with. Uh, We know that for sure. Uh, (laughs) So, um, I actually want to start by talking about your work in animal welfare. Um, One of the things I said in the interview, uh, and I believe it sincerely, is that your book, Animal Liberation, has, in my view, contributed more good to the world than any work of philosophy in the last century, and maybe more than that, because you almost single-handedly created the modern animal welfare movement Now, with the expansion of factory farms since 1975, when you wrote the book, more countries, as you've noted, are now able to create factory farms and eat more meat. And so we're causing suffering on a literally unimaginable scale. So first question I have about this, I take it now factory farms is your focus more than laboratory animals, which was a big part of animal uh, liberation? Yes, that's correct. Um, And I think it has been for quite a long time. I don't remember exactly when. Well, in a sense, even right at the start when I started getting interested in this, before I wrote Animal Liberation, um, I became a vegetarian and I wasn't initially opposed to animal experimentation. Uh, But that was because of my ignorance at that stage that I didn't really realize just how many trivial and unimportant experiments were conducted. Um, Because as a utilitarian, of course, I'm not absolutely opposed to experiments on animals, even harmful ones, uh, if they do a lot more good than they cause cause harm. Uh, and, And, you know, naively, I had the assumption that that may be true of a lot of animal experimentation. Uh, Conversations with Richard Ryder, who wrote a book called Victims of Science and who was in Oxford around the time I was in the 1970s, convinced me that that wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that my focus was on factory farming pretty much from the beginning. Uh, But but certainly in Animal Liberation, I have a long chapter on on animal experimentation as well as a long chapter on factory farming. Um, And now I'm definitely... I definitely think there's far more suffering caused by factory farming and, and that's my principal focus. One of the things I was thinking about, if you were, if I were a true committed utilitarian, which, and I'm not there yet, I might think that all resources should be donated to ending factory farming before any other cause because it would lead so directly and with such certainty to an immense reduction of sentient suffering. I mean, well, would you agree with that? Mm. So there's an assumption there that the more resources you put into ending factory farming, uh, the more likely it's going to happen and that we know the best way to invest those resources. Uh, If we did know that, uh, if that assumption were true... um, yeah, that's a reasonable position. I'm, I'm not. I'd have to think more before saying yes. I definitely think that's right, but it certainly seems to be a prima facie defensible position. 
So many of our listeners have have asked us to talk about vegetarianism. Tamler's not a vegetarian. I am, but I was raised vegetarian. But Tamler has said this a, a couple of times, which I find intriguing, and I want to know uh, what you think of it, that if you can have conditions in which animals don't suffer and you raise them solely for meat, like whatever, free range or whatever, um, assuming that that's possible... As a utilitarian, wouldn't it be a good thing since those animals would not otherwise have lived? It could be. Um, it depends on, on, well, let's say we accept the ethical assumptions that go on to that, which is that it's good to bring more animals into existence if they'll have good lives. And you know, that's obviously a controversial issue, which has its analogs for human population. Is it better if we have a larger population, if we assume that the quality of life remains positive for everyone? Uh, so there's there's those sorts of ethical questions. But, but the simpler answer here is, um, well, what's the counterfactual? What would have happened if we hadn't raised those animals? Uh, uh, would, for example, there have been wild animals, uh, more wild animals in those areas where we're raising the animals and would they have had good lives? Uh, those are complicated questions in themselves because there's a debate that goes on about wild animal suffering and uh, is are the lives of wild animals in general positive or, or negative? Uh, another factor that you have to take into account now is uh, what animals are we talking about and how much will they contribute to climate change? Uh, because if you're talking about um, ruminants, basically cattle and sheep, uh, then that's a significant factor. If you're talking about chickens, it's much less of a factor. So, uh, yeah, th those things need to be taken into account. But, yeah, it's it's it's, it's possible that one could defend um, eating the meat of animals that had had good lives and were uh, then humanely slaughtered at the end of that process. Uh you have to assume that you can maintain that system, that it won't lead to a kind of corruption where, where you know, in order to produce the animals a bit more cheaply, people will start to cut corners and we'll end up back where we are now. Um, but if you make those assumptions, it's, it's a possible view. Is animal suffering something that effective altruists... It, my impression is that they are not as focused on it as they are improving the lives of human beings who are suffering in um, areas of the world where um, there's a lot of poverty and disease. So we, one of our sponsors and somebody we've worked a lot with is GiveWell. And when you look at their charities, it does, I don't think I've ever seen an animal welfare charity. Am I, am I correct about that impression? And if so, why is their focus um, not as much on animals. Well, you, you're correct about GiveWell because GiveWell have decided to specialise in human issues and, and in fact, in uh, sort of immediate human issues. So you don't see GiveWell have projects about uh, reducing existential risk either, reducing the risk of human extinction. Um, but that's, you know, what you have to go back to the, the, the history of it um, – there's now an organisation called Open Philanthropy, which essentially hived off GiveWell, um, uh, separated itself, and is run by uh, Holden Karnofsky, who was with Ellie Hassenfeld, a co-founder of, of GiveWell. And uh, Open Philanthropy 
as the name suggests, is much more wide open in the causes that it considers. It doesn't do the same in-depth research that GiveWell does into particular charities helping people in extreme poverty, uh, but it does uh, more broad research on a range of different causes, and it does that does include animal welfare issues. The animal welfare section is headed up by a guy called Lewis Bollard, as well as a whole wide range of other questions. An effective altruist more broadly, you think the emphasis is distributed as it should be between reducing animal suffering and reducing human suffering? Well, it's not really just distributed between those two because long-termism, as effective altruists call it, looking at the long-term future and trying to reduce risks that our species will become extinct uh, has become a significant part of effective altruism. So you could say there are these three things that effective altruists do, uh, animal welfare now, uh, human welfare now, and uh, looking at the long-term future. Is the distribution as it should be? Perhaps not exactly, but certainly, you know, uh, effective altruists do mostly have concern for animal suffering. And uh, there are quite a few people who've come out of effective altruism who've been doing things relating to it. Uh, Another organization that started is called Animal Charity Evaluators, which tries to do for animal welfare organizations what GiveWell does for human suffering. So effective altruists support and, and look at that website. So, you know, it's difficult to say whether it's the right balance. It may not be, but um, it's certainly significant. Animal, concern for animal suffering is significant to my, in, in my uh, perspective uh, in the effective altruism movement. Taylor, maybe it's time here to ask about some of that futurism stuff um, because uh, you brought it up, Peter, and and I think both Tamler and I share a kind of worry about the focus, the growing focus on sort of existential threats in the long term, specifically the threat of AI. It seems like that might be distracting us from from our current problems in a way that I'm just not sure what to make of it, given the, the amount of uncertainty that's involved and the amount of utility you could always claim that you're building up for future generations. Like, you know, of course, of course, if AI took over, it would be a terrible thing. And then, you know, millions upon billions of people might be oppressed. But it strikes me as something that the people who work on technology are more threatened by this technology. And there seems to be a lot of interest in the, the kind of futuristic camp that has attracted a lot of the interest of the of, of effective altruists or utilitarians. Yeah, I have some concerns about that too um, because of the uncertainty uh, involved. Um, let me just say one, one little detail. I don't think it's necessarily true that AI taking over would be a bad thing. Um, Let's assume we're talking about AI uh, that is conscious, right? That these are not just uh, you know non-conscious machines that somehow uh, you know one scenario we program something wrongly and an AI just churns out paperclips and consumes the whole world and all of us in it in order to make more paperclips. Um, and we assume that that's kind of like a robotic, non-conscious AI. That would clearly be a terrible thing. But if AI does become conscious and maybe uh, is capable of higher and better conscious states than we are, more enjoyable ones, and we somehow get subsumed under that and it's very wise in terms of the best and most ethical way to create 
more good experiences, you know, maybe that's that's not a bad thing. But getting back to your real question, uh, I agree with you that the uncertainty is such that it's very hard to know at this stage whether um, doing research into preventing AI taking us over is actually going to be useful because depending who you talk to, you know, maybe this is still 50 years off and if it is 50 years off, then maybe AI is going to be so much more advanced in 30 or 40 years over what it is today that our attempts to do something to prevent this happening will just seem laughable to people 30 years on. Um, and they'll say, well, that was a complete waste of time. Now we have a better idea of what uh, the risks are of AI taking over and a much better idea of how to prevent that happening. So now it's worth putting some time into it. But it was silly of them to do it then. Yeah, I really like the optimism that machines might actually just be better uh, to us than than everybody assumes. And it, it made me wonder, what would the perfect... Suppose that consciousness exists and, and machines are capable of at least inferring uh, what suffering is, even if they don't experience it directly like, like we, we do... I take it that one of the appeals of utilitarianism, and I think we're, we can talk about the impartiality principle and everything that comes from that, but it seems as if machines might just naturally become utilitarians, or would they become Kantian agents? In the- so this depends, I guess, on your foundational theory about ethics. Um, do you think that ethics is based in reasoning? Um, and if ethics is based in reasoning, uh, and you have these highly intelligent machines that reason better than we do, then would they in fact reach the right ethical theory? Um, And if you think that's the case, and if like me you think the right ethical theory is utilitarian, then you can conclude that highly intelligent machines would all be utilitarians, which from my perspective would be a good thing. Of course, Kantians might not like it because they might (laughs) violate the dignity of a small number of humans or use them as as means to the ends of much larger numbers. but you know they would only do so when that was necessary and the only way of achieving a much better outcome. Do you have nightmares about Kantian AIs taking over? <laughs> no, I don't. That would be an interesting nightmare to have. But I've never had that one. one. One of the things we talked about a lot in the interview that we did is your transition from being more of a human when it comes to grounding utilitarianism to uh, more of a rationalist and perhaps an intuitionist. I guess you're drawn to Sidgwick and Parfit on these matters. What led to that transition for you? And when exactly did it happen? Because in your early work, you did give a more human defense of your normative account than you do now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess a number of different things led to it. I was taught at Oxford by R.M. Hare, who you could say was in that Humean view because he didn't think that there were such things as objective reasons or objective moral judgments. There were only prescriptions that were constrained by the need to universalize them. and That's how he got to his kind of uh, preference utilitarianism out of that. But the problem with that was that for him that was part of the logic of moral language so if you just said, fine, I'm not going to use words like ought or, or you know, any other moral terms, then Hare would admit that the constraint of universalizing disappears. So there's nothing irrational or inconsistent about acting, let's say, entirely in your own interests and ignoring 
the universalizability requirement. So I struggled with that. I struggled with ways of trying to somehow make that a more substantive, rational argument rather than something that depends on the, the logic of the moral terms. And eventually I gave up with that. That was, uh, I'm not sure exactly when, but less than 20 years ago because certainly it was after I came to Princeton, which is now 20 years. Uh, so I sort of gave up with that and around the same time I started thinking about sort of a, a non-naturalistic form of objectivism um, influenced by the directions in which people like uh, Tom Nagel and Derek Parfit were going and eventually decided that the Humean position wasn't as solid as I thought it was. Parfit's example of the person with Future Tuesday indifference uh, helped to persuade me of that. I don't know if you want me to go into that example. Yeah, would you actually? Because you mentioned that in the interview, but we didn't really go into it. And I'd like to hear, because I, I, I confess that I don't find that particularly persuasive, but you mentioned that as something that was influential for you. So can you explain why? Before you start, can I just say that um, I was reading your utilitarianism, a very short introduction, and the introduction to that, you have, I think, one of the nicest, just, you you talk in three or four paragraphs about Derek Parfit, and I think it's just a, a, such a lovely way of talking about it. I never knew him, I could never talk about him, but but... That alone made me, I think, more disposed to becoming a utilitarian. So. <laughs> that, that's very nice. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean that that book was published just after his death, so it was very fresh in our in our minds. Uh, so, future Tuesday indifference. Um, we imagine a person who's just like us in terms of not wanting to suffer, in terms of thinking. Let's say that. Um, a mild headache is a bad thing, but it would be incomparably worse to be tortured for 10 hours uh, and hating you know, the idea of being tortured for 10 hours just as we do, except that he has this one peculiar quirk, which is that he's indifferent to whatever happens to him on any future Tuesday. So if you ask him, for example, uh, would you like to have a headache tomorrow or be tortured the day after tomorrow, he wouldn't automatically say, as we would, I'd rather have the mild headache tomorrow. He'd rather say, well, what day of the week is it? Um, oh, so it's Monday, So it's Sunday now, so tomorrow is Monday, and I wouldn't like to have a headache on Monday, other things being equal. And the day after tomorrow is Tuesday, and Tuesday I'm completely indifferent to whatever happens to me. So, um, yeah, you, you know, I'll accept the torture on Tuesday rather than have a mild headache on Monday. Now, it's only future Tuesdays that he's indifferent to. So, you know, he, he doesn't, he has a lovely Monday without a mild headache. And then he starts getting tortured on Tuesday. And of course, he hates the torture on Tuesday, but, you know, he's accepted it. He can't, he can't get out of it now. And, you know, he survives the torture. And then the next week comes around and he's offered a similar choice. Um, even though he hated the torture much more than he would have hated the headache, he makes the same choice because it's now a future Tuesday again and he's indifferent to it. So, um, why is this a kind of example to Hume? Well, because for Hume, preferences are non-rational. Uh, reason only starts in telling us how to satisfy our preferences and inform us about relevant facts to satisfying our preferences. So if he now does have this very peculiar preference, he's acting rationally in the decisions that he makes. And 
I just can't accept that he is acting rationally. Um, Tamla, you can tell me whether you think he is, since you weren't convinced by this example. But uh, if he isn't, if if we say he isn't acting rationally, then we have to say, well, there's more to acting rationally than just acting so as to fulfill your preferences. So what it does is just open a window into being able to call something irrational that isn't grounded in somebody's emotions and motivations. Um, that's the idea. And once you have that little opening, you can then build to stronger, maybe more controversial claims like thinking that you have greater obligations to your family than you do to the strangers, that that is irrational. But what the Future Tuesday case does is just open the door to even think in those terms. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Whether you would reach that further conclusion that you mentioned is a, it's a further step, of course, but it, it opens the door to it. it. It challenges the basic Jungian idea that reason is the slave of the passions, as you put it. I guess what the, to just answer your question, the reason I don't find that particularly compelling is that it's such a implausible example of, of, of a real-life person and so I don't trust whatever intuitions I have about whether they're being rational or not because I don't believe that this person could really exist. And my intuitions about whether somebody is being rational or irrational are sort of formed around actual real-life people and their... So that's why um, I'm sure it's, a, it's an objection that you're familiar with. But what about like happy slaves? Like I assume that this discussion is related to whether or not, you know, you can have preferences that are right, just bad that, that you reject. So so it doesn't have to be as, as weird as the Parfit example, but you, Tamler, don't think that it's rational for somebody to say like, oh, yes, please enslave me. I love this oppression. Well, I you know, there is certainly a Humean way of answering that objection, which is that were they presented with an alternative view, they would then recognize that that form of life is better. And, you know, you could say this about any kind of false consciousness uh, view that the reason that they have the desires that they currently have is that they just have no way of conceptualizing uh, a better alternative. But if they did, then their motivations and their uh, beliefs would change accordingly. So, so it's the fully informed and rational preferences that you would have rather than the present ones, uh, right? Yeah, which I take it as Bernard Williams and the internal-external reasons kind of view. Yeah, and, and Hare himself had this idea that the you know what we needed to universalize were the considered preferences or what we would have if we were fully informed. But it's 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 difficult because it it does then introduce questions. So is it just factual information that you need, or is it actually rational judgments that some things are better than others? So in the case of the person considering, say, let's say they have a present preference to make themselves a slave um, and then you say well if you knew all the facts you would see that it was a better life being free than being a slave um, and let's say we can then inform him about all the facts but he still says I, I still want to be a slave do we then accept that that's okay or do we say he's making some kind of mistake here 
I guess I'm inclined to bite the bullet there uh-huh. and say <laughs> if that's really... And, and I'd be somewhat surprised if you weren't either, right? I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you might have a view along the line of Bentham about human rights as being nonsense or nonsense on stilts. Would you think that that person is irrational? So just to get the quote right, uh, Bentham said that natural rights are nonsense and natural and imprescriptible rights are nonsense on stilts. He didn't say that human rights were, he didn't actually use that term, but he was quite happy for people to have rights. He just thought that they're not natural, that they have to be given by legislatures or social conventions or something of that sort. But coming back to the main point, I think you're right to bite the bullet on this. I think that's the only thing that uh, someone wanting to defend a Jungian position can do. And, and I would have done the same uh, when I was in my earlier um, hair, you know, uh, following Hare's universal prescriptivism. Um, but now I would say that whether, uh, and, and you're right also that I'm not going to say categorically that it's slavery is always wrong. Um, and Hare wrote an article about what's wrong with slavery and Uniquely, he was able to write one from the point of view of someone who'd actually been a slave because he was a slave of the Japanese working on the uh, Burma Railroad. I now would think that it's not the preferences that are crucial. It's the states of consciousness that the person will have. And if we can predict that his states of consciousness will be significantly worse uh, if he is enslaved than if he's not enslaved, then... Uh, it would be he would be making a mistake, and I wouldn't follow his preferences. Contrarywise, if that's not the case, and let's assume there's no other consequences, he's not setting a bad example that will lead other people to have miserable lives as slaves or anything like that. Um, if that's not the case, then it's okay. Then I, as a hedonistic utilitarian, I can't object to him um, deciding to become a slave. What what led you to change from a preference utilitarian to a hedonistic? utilitarian or considerations like these? Uh, it, was, it was part of that process that I referred to of um, recognizing that there can be objective grounds for saying that some things are intrinsically good and others not. Uh, and I was certainly influenced by Sidgwick in that. Uh, I wrote a book uh, with the same co-author as the Utilitarianism, a very short introduction, uh, Katagina de Lazari Ruddick. We wrote a book that started out as a sort of study of Sidgwick. It was called The Point of View of the Universe, which is a famous phrase of Sidgwick's. Um, and it looked at Sidgwick and to what extent his views were still defensible in terms of contemporary ethical arguments. Uh, and Sidgwick argues that the only thing that is intrinsically good or intrinsically bad are states of consciousness, that if there were no consciousness, there would be no value in the universe. Um, we you know, we came to accept that uh, that view and also came to see some of the objections to prefer, of preference utilitarians, or, or I did. Uh, Katagina was never a preference utilitarian, but I was. Before we started the project, we came to see some of those objections as more serious than we'd thought before. That, uh, you know, the sort of the pointless preferences, the um, uh, Rawls case of someone whose preference is to count the number of blades of grass in, in, in various lawns around, around the place, that uh, if... There's no value in satisfying that person's preferences unless they get pleasure from doing it. If they get pleasure from doing it and they're unhappy if they're not counting blades of grass, okay, then we can see the value in doing that. But if a person just says, no, I'm not happy doing this, but I just have a preference for doing it, it's hard to see the value in satisfying that preference, we thought. So in the in the move to hedonism, 
you can take care of some of the objections to preference utilitarianism, but you you then are b- burdened with something like defining pleasure. And I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about what your view of of pleasure actually is, um, and whether does behavior how much does behavioral science really inform this, and and can we measure it right? And do you think there's an answer to whether pleasure is a unitary experience, in, in the sense that we could then, you know, collapse them all and and do the calculations? Uh, yeah. So these are good questions, and I don't know that I have all of the answers to them. Uh, Katarzyna is currently working on a book on on pleasure, although the, the book she's working on is in is in Polish, but she is going to produce an English version of it when that's done. And we've been discussing a lot of these questions. Um, so we, we follow Sidgwick's account um, in terms of a, a definition, which roughly is that um, pleasure is a, is a state of consciousness that we uh, immediately apprehend as desirable. So it's something like you know when when we have it we experience it and uh, we apprehend that as as um, something that is a desirable state of consciousness um, and you you could say you know other things being equal we want it to continue and if we're not in that state we want to be in that state so it is related to desire and you could say well isn't that then somehow a preference model but it's desire about a state of consciousness for its own sake so whereas the preference utilitarian might say you know, I desire to count blades of grass, irrespective of what state of consciousness that creates in me. So the hedonistic utilitarian defining pleasure as Sidgwick does will say, well, that's not intrinsic value. It's it's your judgment of desirability comes into it when you're focusing on states of consciousness, not just about anything. Um, but then you asked a question about the science of it, the neuroscience and behavioral science. I do think that's relevant. Uh, and there is some good research going on about, you know, so is pleasure like a, a gloss that comes on other things or is it a separate sensation? I haven't gone far enough into that uh, really to give you a good answer. But I, but I think, yeah, I think we're learning things about pleasure. Uh, and you also asked about measuring it. Mm, I don't think we've got a way of doing that as yet, but who knows, maybe one day we will. Measuring just states of pleasure? Yeah, that's right, directly, right? I mean, because we can, we can measure you know, how much people want things um, in terms of saying, you know, do, do I feel pleasure more intensely than you do, let's say, you know, or you know, let's say we both eat our favorite food, whatever that might be, and we both sort of lick our lips and say that was delicious. Are we at the same level or do some people get more pleasure out of eating food than others? I suppose some do and other people get more pleasure out of doing philosophy than others and all the rest of it. So, can, but can, do we have a way of measuring that? No, I mean, we're... The moment we say so, everybody counts for one and none for more than one. Um, but you know, I suppose it's possible that that's not the case. And it's probably likely that that's not the case, really, that some people can get both more pleasure and more misery. And, and strictly speaking, a hedonistic utilitarian should pay more attention to their states than to those of people who are, you know, more just a smaller little up and down. What about the question of if um, we could measure states of happiness, how would it compare to reduction of suffering? And how do you weigh that? Given where we are right now, how do you weigh those two things when you're deciding, say, what to donate to? Right. Um, 
So I tend to think that suffering is more significant in two, for two different reasons. Um, one is that I think we can better understand how to reduce suffering than how to increase happiness. Uh, you know, there are some very obvious causes of suffering uh, that we can prevent and we know to pre- how to prevent that. And it's less obvious what makes people happy. Uh, so that's part of it. But the other thing is I don't think the scale is the same. That is some, you know, at first glance you might say, well, there's a neutral state in the middle and then we're capable of happiness up to plus 100 and we're capable of suffering up to minus 100, you know, if we have the neutral state as zero. But when you think about it, I don't think that's true. Um, If you say to most people, so suppose you could experience for an hour the greatest pleasures that you've ever experienced, but you then have to have an hour of the greatest suffering you've ever experienced. Would you would you make that choice? I've asked various classes about that. There are some hands that go up, but it's um, a clear minority of the class. Uh, I can't, you know, maybe it's 20% of the class who say that they would accept that bargain. Most people are pretty clear that they wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, or, the, or the ones that haven't really been tortured or suffered <laughs> right. badly. I don't know. Um, that sounded like a preference answer though, right? If you're then determining you're you're resolving that question by going by people's preferences. That, because that's all we can do at the moment because we don't have any way of saying, oh, look, you know, let's look at their brain states. Ah, see, here you see this person is getting more pleasure because of their particular brain patterns. Um, and even if we did have the brain states, it's not clear whether the brain states would correspond to the to the sensations, to the feelings. So that's all we can do at the moment. But I'm not saying that the preference is ultimately what's decisive. I want to be able to measure this stuff just so I can answer the question of what a masochist is really doing. Is a masochist really wanting pain or are they just getting pleasure in in their pain? I don't know how to deal. I I feel like that dealing with masochists in any ethical theory is a little difficult. Yeah. um, I assume that they're getting pleasure uh, from their pain, but um, I don't know. As as I understand it, it would be... You know, as I'm using the terms, it would be difficult to want pain for its own sake rather than for some pleasure that you get from it. We talked about this a little bit in the existential risk um, discussion, but I'm wondering now that we're talking about comparing happiness and suffering, what you think about present suffering and happiness versus future suffering and happiness. Do you weigh them equally, controlling for uncertainty or do you think that present suffering and happiness is more important? No, I, I weigh them equally discounting for uncertainty. And, and that actually brings me back to a point that I thought about making when you were speaking before, when we were talking about the person with Future Tuesday indifference and you were saying how weird this is. And then you, you said that can open a door to cases like, well, should I give more weight to my interests or those of my family than than those of strangers? But there's a there's an intermediate case which I think is much more familiar and less weird and that's people who do discount the future uh, and not just for uncertainty. On the basis of the Future Tuesday case, I now want to say that that's irrational and I wonder what you think about that. So this is the case of the person who can feel a toothache coming on and from past experience they know that if they don't go to the dentist, they'll be in severe pain for uh, several days and moreover uh, there's a holiday coming up and they know that they won't be able to get a dentist appointment um, unless they do it now 
right? But nevertheless, they put off making the dentist appointment and later on they're in much more severe pain and, and wish that they made the appointment. So I think that that's irrational in, in just the same way as Future Tuesday. Indifference is irrational, but, you know, you're smiling and I, I take it that you recognize this kind of tray that it does exist in the real world. No, I, that's, I think, a better example. I, I'm actually more, I find that more compelling. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I could try to respond that, well, they're not fully informed when they're making their judgments in the present. But given that this has happened, you know, a number of times previously in your example, it seems like they are informed. They do have the information. And as somebody who procrastinates a lot and who knows that procrastinating leads me to suffer more than I would otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, if I was going to come to your side, it would be more from a case like that than something so outlandish as the future Tuesday case. (laughs) Okay, that's good to know. I'll use that example more often. I mean, when you were describing that person, I I just felt like you were just describing my week. (laughs) I I wish that I could limit my indifference to my future suffering to Tuesdays. That that would be progress. So I've always been intrigued, and to be honest, I was, at first, my resistance to utilitarianism was generally that it's such a bad um, guide for decision-making, and I just misinterpreted uh, that this is what utilitarianism was trying to tell us to do. And it is, but, you know, now that I know that it's just the right-making criteria, um, I can fully endorse that it is a bad guide for decision-making for many reasons. And I've always been just fascinated by the view that Sidgwick and, and others have expressed that like maybe as utilitarians, we should, we should keep this utilitarian stuff to ourselves. And in reading, uh, you talk about it on, um, in your short introduction. You can't answer this, but I think you might be an esoteric uh, morality guy. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I, again, we... We discussed that both in the very short introduction and in the point of view of the universe. Um, I, we think Sidgwick was right there. Um, I think that uh, there are some situations in which it's better, you know, you, you, you can do the right action, but if you make it public that you're doing what you're doing, the consequences will be bad. Um, and in those circumstances, you should do the right action and keep it secret, uh, you know, if, if you reliably can keep it secret, of course. So here's a question that relates then to you had a talk in New Zealand that was recently canceled. Well, yes, it actually is now doubly canceled because, of course, nobody can fly to New Zealand or, or for that matter, <laughs> right. leave, leave Australia where I am. It was this overdetermined cancellation. <laughs> it was overdetermined that you never talk. <laughs> but but the, actually, the initial cancellation was a cancellation of, by a particular venue, ironically a casino, which was taking the high moral ground in refusing me the right to speak there. <laughs> um, uh, but we immediately had three other offers of suitable venues, so... Uh, had it not been for the coronavirus crisis, uh, I would have still been going to Auckland in, in June. So I guess what I was going to ask uh, related to the esoteric morality, it seems that when you are protested, it is generally for your views on disabled infants and what parents should have the right to do. And I wonder if there's any times that you regret that aspect of your work, making that aspect of your work public 
because it is a distraction from your other work, which is less controversial and um, has the potential to impact so many more people. Yeah, I have a few things to say about that. In, In one sense, of course, you're right. It is a distraction and it's led to people protesting as has happened on this occasion. Um, and generally that's regrettable. But the two things I would say that go the other way is one, um, you know, I am a philosopher and I can't avoid questions about the implications of my views. And even if I hadn't written about this, you know, I, I certainly could have chosen not to write about that topic. But somebody would undoubtedly have said, well, you know, it's an implication of your views about say abortion and so on, that they would apply to infants as well. And then they might bring up exactly these cases of parents with severely disabled infants who think that it would be better if the child would not live. So I don't think I could have completely escaped that, although I certainly could have made a a less prominent part of my views. The second thing is that uh, at least, you know, in a reasonably free society, attempts to suppress ideas actually usually backfire. Um, because then you get a lot of publicity. And, you know, you heard about this cancellation in New Zealand, although it, you wouldn't have even known that I was going to speak in Auckland, planning to speak in Auckland, if it hadn't happened. And that's something that's happened in various ways. So the, the best example is that these protests first started in Germany in 1989 when I was invited to speak at a congress uh, organised by parents of children with disabilities, uh, a more militant group of disability organization protested that and it became a major thing and it was in lots of German newspapers. Now, practical ethics had been translated into German about five years before that. And if you look at the sales for those five years, they were minimal. They were in the, the low hundreds per year. You look at the sales after that happened and they, they go into the thousands. It was put out in a small, more popular uh, edition um, and it's continued to sell reasonably well afterwards. So, and, and I know that it's got used in a number of courses in, in Germany. So there's a lot of people who, because of the fact that I said these things about disabled infants, which were controversial, have been reading practical ethics, not just the things I said about infants, but the things I said about global poverty and the things I said about animals. So maybe, you know, very hard to calculate, but maybe the overall effects have been positive rather than negative. That, that almost supports a view that's like the opposite of esoteric morality, that you should have something that is going to draw so much attention that, w- that will then publicize your other views. If, if you're in the particular position that I am, yeah. But, but when we talk about esoteric morality, we're often talking about particular actions, like you, know, you torture the terrorist to find out where the nuclear bomb is hidden, even though in general it's right to have a rule against torture because otherwise people will torture all sorts of innocent people for, for, for no point but because they're sadists who happen to be prison guards. Uh, so, yeah, those are the sorts of cases. So, um, the very brief final question. Do you find that in your interpersonal life you m- maybe mask the your your ethical views um, in order to seem sort of more in line with the intuitions that other people have. Uh, me and my lab have done some work showing that people tend to not like uh, people who express being utilitarian because it seems non-empathic and cold and calculating. 
knowing you by reputation, I know that you're not like that, but I wonder if, does, does it influence how you find the, uh, your interactions with people? And, and I don't think it does on much on a day-to-day level. No, I think people, you know, understand and take me for what I am. And as you say, I do have a lot of uh, emotions and I think, you know, you don't have to be coldly calculating in every, uh, in your interactions with individuals. It's more about your, your general life plan. And uh, as I say, you know, the, the things that you decide to eat or not eat, the things that you decide to donate money to or not. So I, I think it's not really a problem. Every now and again, somebody tells me that I'm being too calculating about something or other. How many fat men have you shoved off of footbridges? <laughs> Be honest. This is the thing. I've, I've <laughs> never been in that situation where I could save lives by doing that. And, uh, you know, it's some sense perhaps it's regrettable that i haven't had these opportunities to save lives but uh instead i have opportunities fortunately by donating to the most effective uh organizations uh and let me get in a plug for the life you can save if people want to know which are the most effective charities please go to the life you can save.org uh, a charity that i founded and uh, you'll find that at um and that's a lot uh, easier to do and causes fewer problems than pushing uh, heavy people off bridges <laughs> What was the example? You were just going to give an example of somebody who was saying you were too calculating. Oh, right. So this is actually in this coronavirus crisis. Somebody somebody was saying that she was feeling guilty about not being able to see her grandmother because um, her grandmother was in isolation, being more at risk, of course, as people, more senior people are. And she was feeling guilty because the grandmother was alone and not, you know, she was contacting her when she could, but she was not seeing her. Uh, and I said, you know, well, you shouldn't feel guilty about that because obviously it's in your grandmother's best interest that you don't feel and you're doing everything that you can. And she said, oh, you know, see, Peter, don't be so rational or something like that. Of course, I still feel guilty. How can I, how can I not feel guilty? Right? So it was, it was that, you know, maybe I should have simply said, oh, yes, you know, I sympathize with your terrible guilt feelings. But I, I, I tend, to tend to think these feelings should be affected by the knowledge of, you know, that you actually haven't done anything wrong. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been an honor having you on. Good, good to talk to both of you. Thanks a lot.